Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Or semi-live. I am alive. From the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. The program, True Crime Uncensored. Produced by Magic Matt Allen, who probably should know better by now. I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man over there is our fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer. Hello. I'm afraid to answer the telephone because I know it's Erin Moriarty and she wants to know where her damn toaster is. <laughs> Howard, La- Howard Lapidus promised her a toaster a couple of years ago and... I know she never got it. I mentioned it to Howard about a week before he passed away, and he said, I'll get around to it. I think he was also going to send her a, a blanket with a bank logo on it that <laughs> he got from First Interstate Bank about uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, well, should we uh, should we answer the phone and say hi to Aaron? She's here. We could say hi. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, I forgot about the toaster. Oh, and I had to remind you. I am owed a toaster. <laughs> she's, she's owed a toaster. Well, someone said, how do you get such good guests on your program? And we said, well, we promise them a toaster. It <laughs> usually works. Welcome to the program. Nice to have you back. This is your fourth appearance, uh, for those who are hallucinating, it's your fourth appearance on the program, and it's a pleasure to have you back. Now, have you been sequestered in your uh, the shutdown production, and have you broadcasting from your basement or something? Um, from my home, but it's no one's at CBS. They totally shut down the CBS broadcast center on West Fifty Seventh um, after a number of people tested positive, and it has not reopened. So there are some people working out at the Ed Sullivan uh, Theater, mm-hmm. and then everybody else is home. His home. I've been staying home because then again, I'm I'm high risk having been a disc jockey. They're the first to go. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're high risk for being placed in the nearest rubber room, girl. <laughs> they're always picking on me, Aaron. But uh, being as that you know, There's I've got a lot to pick on. Yeah, there certainly is. I've got the age going for me. I had quadruple bypass surgery and a new heart valve exactly a year ago. Uh, COPD and uh, a good pack of Winston's, and I'm in great shape. So, <laughs> oh my God! I've just been staying home and uh, gone through everything on Netflix, everything on uh, Turner Classic Movies. <laughs> Watched a Lily last night. Hi Lily, hi Lily, hi Low. Part of my uh, cultural expansion program. Uh, did you ever see that film, Aaron, with Leslie Caron? I have not. Oh, I have not. No, that's a tragic story. 1959, Leslie Caron and Mel Ferrer. And some puppets. Film, actually, I think it won something like, you know, best film with Leslie Corona Bell Ferrer. Puppets were awesome. <laughs> yeah, the puppets were awesome. Career, of course, we know has been awesome. And I remember the first time you were on the show, uh, I think you'd been somewhere real exciting, like Vietnam when the Tet Offensive was going on or something like that. Huh. Not Vietnam, but I did go to the war. Do you remember that? I did go in yes. 2003 to Iraq. And uh, were they forthcoming Seems with like what was... a long time ago. What? Were they forthcoming with what's going on news-wise? I mean, would they... Were, here are our big plans for an assault. <laughs> they come on and tell you what was going on? Oh, remember. That was... It almost seems quaint now when you look back on that and how much um, initially we accepted from the government, and then when you went there and realized that the story was a little different than what we've been hearing. <laughs> yes. It kind of uh, threw you a bit, huh? 
Oh, it did. And then you wonder why there are these reporters now who question everything from the current occupant of the White House. It's a tradition. Well, yeah, it was even worse back with the uh, the founding fathers and the first newspapers. They were just vicious. Absolutely. I mean, the, the current occupant should just relax and, and have a sense of humor instead of taking everything so personally. This is the way it's always been. It's not him, and it will be the next occupant as well. Yeah, or the one before or the one before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people always think that everything started last week. <laughs> Well, people who don't have any sense of history. Well, that's and kind of also, I do think that certain people um, have thinner skin when it's women asking the question, if you notice. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of women who happen to be White House reporters who have taken a little bit of verbal abuse. Well, that kind of comes with the territory. Like one yeah. of the very first interviews uh, I ever gave on the radio where I was a guest on someone's program, <clears throat> someone called in and said, why don't you just admit you're in league with the devil and get it over with? <laughs> 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 yeah, only momentarily caught me off guard. <laughs> but, uh, people do get all worked up. I mean, uh, you've probably looked on Facebook or uh, Twitter, and boy, uh, just to get so upset. And, and it scares me a little bit. That people get so uh, divided and, and uh, just so quick to get angry. I could recall I their... just think that Right. I think people have a lot going on in their personal lives, and it's a way to unleash it. But it's very scary when people show up at the Michigan State House with rifles. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is a bit unsettling. Yes. I mean, I understand why people are angry. But there does seem to be a better way to express your anger. And they can at least wear masks while they do it. If they want to go out, at least wear masks. Yeah, especially if they're robbing a 7-Eleven. That's my advice. If you're going to yeah, have a yeah. gun. It... <laughs> uh, what was it? It is rather ironic that it's okay to go into banks now wearing a mask. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mark told his great story a couple of weeks, well, about a month ago. <laughs> the guy, true story, the guy goes into the bank. <clears throat> Go ahead, Mark. I, I, I worked for uh, almost 20 years for uh, financial institutions here in L.A., and I did a lot of fraud uh, investigation assistance. And we had uh, one uh, mental midget. <laughs> he uh, plans uh, this robbery to the nth degree. And he goes in at the right time, and he goes to every window and collects all the cash, and he gets to the last window and gets the cash, making sure that the die pack uh, or the last bill that triggers the alarm, because there's a most of the drawers have a trigger, and you take the last bill out, it pops up and it automatically calls the alarm. He had this all worked out. He gets all the cash, and he hands it back to the teller. And the teller is bewildered. Yes. I'm bewildered. And then, and he says, please count it. So she dutifully counts all of the cash. And then he says, and hands her a deposit slip. <laughs> and oh with his account no. number. No way. True story. And she fills it out. And he says, thank you, and leaves. They'll never catch him. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a great story. It's a true one too. I mean, just the kind of, you can't make up how stupid some people are. Oh, I got oh I got God, so many of these, of these people that just 
that they, you know, they just don't have everything in the right place to be a criminal. Now, in, in your career, and you've, you've interviewed a heck of a lot of people, and I'm sure you've encountered a wide degree of stupidity. Well, it's almost, I, I don't know if it's stupidity. I think it's more sociopathy, um, where there are people who actually think if they say something, you have to believe it. And I think there are people who have the nerve, even after committing a crime, to go and do a television interview and think that you're going to believe what they say. Yeah, that, as I saw the, what's it called, uh, the uh, the car that they have set up for people to steal <laughs> so they can catch him when they steal it. And they're pulling the guy out of the car and he's going, I'm not here. <laughs> I, but that's more true than you believe. It's very interesting to me, the egos of these individuals who commit crimes and still think that they can outsmart the yeah. other person in an interview. And it usually doesn't work that well. It's like what the psychopaths always want to defend themselves in court. And that's a scary one. Of course, we we had here, and I remember in, in uh, here in Los Angeles, we had the Center for Constitutional Law and Justice uh, right after uh, the Rodney King verdict. Oh, yeah. And uh, what's his name? Uh, got hit in the head with a brick. And they, uh, they put that guy on trial. And his lawyer was going on forever with the most bizarre uh, closing arguments that made no sense. And his, his boss finally goes and looks at his resume, and it says that he did some colonization of, of the moon and did some mining expositions on Mars. <laughs> so it goes down, they fire the attorney, and then have to ask the, uh, you know, the, the guy who's on trial, uh, what do you want to do now? <laughs> He says, well, uh, I'll just stick with the same guy because we're already gone through this whole thing. He, of course, had to declare a mistrial and, you know, throw the whole thing out. Well, the whole world is watching on TV because it was covered. Some pretty great trials, you have to admit. Unfortunately, the pandemic in interrupted the latest Durst trial, where I just don't know why there is a defense since they've admitted he wrote the cadaver letter. So where does he go with that? You can't make this stuff up. And, I mean, he wrote the cadaver letter. The letter says where to find Susan Berman's body. And yet he didn't do it. He just happened to drop by her house, yeah. find her dead, and then send a note to the Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. There just doesn't seem like a very powerful defense there. Well, sometimes you just got to think of something on the spur of the moment. <laughs> I guess. I guess. And then you have the situation where the people are blatantly innocent, were out of town at the time, and yet they still wind up convicted. Or they'll have a second yeah. trial, and they'll bring in all these witnesses that say, he was at a family reunion uh, 75 miles away. You go, no, we don't believe it. My favorite, however, is the prosecuting attorneys who say, we didn't need DNA to convict him. There's no reason to look at the DNA now. Well, that happens, though, all the time. And one of the most astounding cases right now is Lamar Johnson's case in Missouri. Tell so me Lamar about that Lamar Johnson one. was convicted of murder. Mm -hmm. And his, the Innocence Project, the Midwest Innocence Project, decided to take the case, and they uncovered a lot of new evidence to indicate that he didn't do it, and they knew who did. And so then they take the case to the DA's office, and it's a new DA. She investigates the case and reaches the same conclusion. He's innocent. So now you have the defense, and you have the prosecutor's office both saying, 
this man's innocence. They both go to court to have his conviction overturned. And the Attorney General's Office of Missouri walks in and says, no, there's no procedure for this. <laughs> and the judge had to go along with it. There's no procedure uh, in law, in the appellate system, for someone who happens to be innocent for the, both the defense and the prosecution to go in. You have to file habeas. You have to file... So this, this man, Lamar Johnson, is still sitting in prison while the Missouri Supreme Court decides whether he can be released when there's no procedure to oh. release an innocent man. I'm what? not making this story that is, up. That is insane. <clears throat> I remember a, a case some years ago we had on the show um, where the, the individual was innocent, and now everyone knew he was innocent, and they brought it to the judge to get the case overturned, and the judge's specific comment was, and I quote, the fact the man is innocent isn't sufficient to overturn the conviction. Wow. That I'm not is, remember, you don't that's remember true. That's a notable quote. <laughs> yeah, but it's true, and that's really one of the things that I keep running up against. Um, when you go to law school, you don't really spend a lot of time on appellate law. But since O.J. Simpson's trial, when DNA really was first used, um, not successfully in that case, but um, was used. Since then, it's indicated that there are far more wrongful convictions than what we knew. But the problem is the appellate system has not kept up with it. And so in some states, like Missouri, if you can prove you're actually innocent, that is not a reason to get out of prison unless you're on death row. That's if you only have life without parole... You cannot get out. If you're on death row and you can prove you're actually innocent, then you can get a hearing. What is there any thought? No what's sense. the thought process behind that? What is the justification? Does anyone ever explain to you why that's okay? Well, the Missouri legislature's never fixed the law. It's all law that's been built on on judicial decisions, and um, and for some reason, the Missouri Supreme Court has never taken it taking it on and trying to resolve that issue. But right now in Missouri, if you can prove that you're actually innocent and you're on death row, you have a much better chance of getting out than if you're in prison without a chance for parole, which to me are basically the same thing. It's nice. Is the, uh, is the governor uh, available? Has, has the authority to grant a pardon? Oh, yeah. I mean, would, but that's, that's not happening. Not in Missouri. So right now, in the case of um, in in the case of Lamar Johnson, it's in front of the Missouri Supreme Court, which actually took the case on its own. I mean, it's going to get resolved. But in the meantime, during the pandemic, Lamar Johnson is sitting in prison. There was one here in California where three guys in a green Oldsmobile committed the crime, but they found out there was this black guy hiding in a garage down the road. He, he was a car thief, and he escaped. And they just stopped the whole thing of looking for the three guys in the uh, in the green Oldsmobile and put it all on him. You're not talking about the Kevin Cooper case, are you? I believe so. Yeah, because that, he's still on death row. I've done several stories on him. There's no question. There were five people killed. It wasn't stolen cars. Five people. Right. Four people were killed. The fifth person was almost killed. Yes, yeah, so seven were kids. And the fifth person, a young man, yes, uh, three of them were kids. 
and the young man who survived was eight and a half, nine, and he said there were three people, three white people, mm -hmm. and in the end, they convicted one black guy. There were three different weapons. Um, there were 140 injuries done in, according to the medical examiner, within about a four-minute period of time, but they, they said one guy did it. Yeah, this was so strange. Now, he was it a was criminal. Very recently, in fact, I think it was the previous uh, governor, Jerry Brown, uh, full of attorneys or whatever, went to him with all this and said, how about you let the guy out? And the response was, he was convicted of these horrible things, and if I let out someone who's convicted of all these horrible things, it doesn't look good. Well, I think there is some truth. He did allow some new testing, and so did Governor Newsom. Um, he also ordered some new testing. The results are in, and they're inconclusive. Yeah. So I don't know really what's next for Kevin Cooper unless Governor Newsom, who's a little busy right now, orders an innocence investigation. And that's what Kevin Cooper's defense team is pushing for, is an innocence investigation. But he's been in prison since... 1985, yeah. I believe. Yeah. I don't have that year wrong. 83, Close, though, yeah. 1983, I believe. That's how. I mean, it's been a very long time. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. Have either have either of you been uh, on a jury? But I was uh, called every year. I know from my early 20s to middle, you know, middle late 40s, and I've I've sat in on 13 cases. I've been an alternate wow. on two. One of them is is the most incredible story ever. I have found the jury system to work. Now, it's only, it's, it is a very small sample, and it is just the San Fernando Valley. Most it boggles my mind to hear of these, uh, of these instances where it is so clearly obvious the person wasn't involved. Anyone, you know, anyone that, that has, you know, any thoughts of any kind would be able to see through it. Yeah, but sometimes you get so wedded to your opinion, and this happens a lot in law enforcement, and every law enforcement person we've had on has, has said, yeah, that's right. They'll make a decision on who did it. And then they, and they, they can't be swayed. Yeah, can't be swayed. Right. I think what happens, like in the case of Crosley Green, which is a case I've worked on for a very long time, a man whose conviction has actually been overturned, it was overturned two years ago, but he's still sitting in prison, why? Because the state of Florida is appealing it. But what happened in his case, and you kind of understand why the jury then convicts them, is that they get people who have their own legal problems to testify against them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with promises, we'll, we'll give you a deal, um, or we won't pursue this. Or in one case, it was a woman, you're going to lose your kids unless you testify against them. And even though the jury is aware they're making deals, they don't, they're not aware of all the details. So it looks like a strong case. And then it's after the trial that everything falls apart, but that person's sitting in prison. Fascinating. It's, yeah, there's a, there was one up in the Washington State that I just happened to stumble upon with this this uh, kid is pulled over by the cops, and on the passenger side, between the door and the seat, is a uh, like a wallet sort of thing, larger, you know, a little packet with all sorts of drugs in it. Kid's never seen it before in his life. He's sentenced. He goes away. As the trial is going on, the person who would belong to happens to be in the court on something else entirely. He goes in and hears this, and he raises it and goes, Your Honor, Your Honor, that's mine. That kid gave me a ride, <laughs> and I lost it. 
Oh my God! And he said, "Sit down and shut. Up, sit down and shut up. You can't introduce, uh, you know, new uh, material while the trial is still on, or something like that." And that was it. The kid went to prison. Even though there was someone oh, saying, incredible. "Yeah, well, I think I, last time you were on, I told you about you, you thought I was pulling your well-formed leg when I said a guy was found guilty of a crime he was never charged with." <laughs> Much to his surprise, and that was a fellow in Alaska, the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy. He had delivered some things from a junkyard or whatever that was later used to make a bomb. And so he was found guilty of possession of a deadly weapon or something. <laughs> what? He was never charged with it. How did they find him guilty of it? So that was on appeal, and the court said, well, yeah, that's a mistake, but it's not that big a mistake. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, the, I think the moral here is that, you know, you don't want anything to do on the wrong side of our criminal justice system. Even because I think justice is less observed. Well, maybe we have a legal system, but not a justice system. Yeah. Oh. I was on a... Uh, a um, malpractice, uh, medical malpractice. And we had two physical uh, uh, people beating on each other, brawls, in the deliberation room. Oh, no, no. Carried. That's like 12 more than angry men. Uh, well, the, uh, the uh, marshals had to come in and break it up. You don't see that on Law and Order. I mean, Aaron, and, and your exciting adventures uh, in, in covering these uh, people who are innocent, who are in a slammer, and that sort of thing. Have you seen some that were just so outrageous that you were like dumbfounded? Well, I think the Crosley Green case, and that's a case I've been working on. That case, according to his lawyers, and there's certainly evidence to uh, support it, looks like it's a racial hoax. And so just briefly, there's a woman um, on October 4th, 1989, who calls 911 and says that her boyfriend was shot in a citrus grove. She was no longer with him. She'd gone to a friend's house. She waited to call 911. She gives very bad directions to get there. The cops don't get there for a half hour because they're such vague. They get there and he's still alive. And they go, who did this? And she tells the police that a black man has robbed and shot him. But when the cops get there, they go, who did this? And he goes, just take me home. Just take me home. He refuses to say anything. And unfortunately, he dies in the hospital. She then is allowed four hours without any kind of tape interview with the cops. And four hours later, she does a tape and she describes a black man. Um, that day, she pulls a black man out of a photo lineup. Her story changes from the taped interview to what she says to the cops at the scene to what she says at trial. But that man was convicted and and is still in prison, even though his, his conviction's now been overturned. It was overturned in July 2017. And he's still and in he there. there. Because the state of Florida is appealing it. And he's sitting in prison. And it's outrageous. When you look at the facts, there, there isn't even real evidence to support that there was an assailant at all. It looks like, from the evidence, that she accidentally shot her boyfriend and blamed it on a black guy. Yeah, that's, that's usually that's pretty common. When, when in doubt, blame it on a black guy. Uh, I stopped in Palm there Springs at the, uh, at the Bank of America in Palm Springs to get some money. My son and I were driving around. And I find a guy bleeding on the ground at the bottom of the stairs outside. 
And so, of course, I go over and I, you know, I help him. And I pick up his money, which is blood-stained all over the ground, and put it in his you know, uh, chest pocket. And he says, calls the cops and says, three black men, uh, Rob beat me and robbed me. And I said, no, you weren't robbed. The money's in your pocket. I put it there myself. Oh, my God. And so the cops show up, and here he told them these three black guys did this. They took his money, and they beat him. What had happened is he fell down the stairs. And, you know, oh, are you from, from the ATM, you go up about five steps up to a plateau of the bank, and there's the ATM. He stumbled, fell down the stairs, whacked himself unconscious just before I showed up, and he's bleeding all over his money. You know, I bring him to, give him his money, and he tries to tell the same story to the cops. They're telling him, be on the lookout for three. And then the cop told me, he says, you know, the story of three black men, anytime they say three black men, automatically my radar goes up that they're not telling the truth. Well, they don't, they don't travel in packs? No, no, oh. they don't. <laughs> Only Mexicans. <laughs> I come from Walla Walla, Washington, where... If there aren't any. <laughs> where, no, where there are plenty of them, but if there's three of them standing on the corner, it's a civil disobedience. <laughs> and if there's more than two black men standing on the corner, it's a crime wave from the Tri-Cities. I see. You know, so that leaves out, you know, they can't be around a Home Depot. <laughs> no, they, they don't have a Home Depot in Walla Walla, that's why. To reduce the crime rate. <laughs> there must be a Lowe's there. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the Department of Justice sent out a fellow to speak to the judges in Walla Walla because they were giving heavier sentences to uh, Hispanics and black people than they were to white people. Sounds fair to me. Yeah, so they just started giving heavier sentences to white people. <laughs> hey, turnabout's fair play. <laughs> I'm not making that up. You think so? I did read, Aaron, maybe you've seen the same figure that up to, this is the important part, up to... 60% of people in prison actually did the crime. But look at that. How depressing that would be if that's really true, which means that 40% did not. Yeah. And that's, you know, we never used to think that. I, I know that when I first started reporting, we thought it was maybe one between one and 10%. And I think that these forensic tests have indicated, I mean, it's all kinds of reasons. It's because of faulty eyewitness uh, identification and testimony, coerced confession, um, bad cops. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's so many reasons. But the idea that there could be nearly half or 40% of innocent people sitting in prison and most likely people of color, that's... A, a terrible indictment of the system. Terrible indictment. And while I know that you and I all see that most of the time I think the jury system works, I think it doesn't work when you have cops willing to lie on the stand. Oh, yeah. Worst confessions, um, bad, faulty eyewitness identification, because there's no way for a jury to be able to determine whether that's... Or when the um, medical evidence is bad, like shaken babies. There's no question that there are a number of people in prison today convicted of killing babies, and they didn't do it. They're innocent. I can't imagine anything worse psychologically and emotionally than being... I mean, it's bad enough to be accused of something you didn't do, and I've had that happen to me. It was something horrifying, and I didn't do it. I wasn't even there. But there are still people to this day, 20, 30 years later, who say, Burl, did you do such and such? One of the reasons why I do do wrongful convictions 
it doesn't make up for getting out of the prison, but one thing we find is that if we cover a case and we uncover evidence that indicates someone's innocent and we broadcast that, it does help the person who's in prison and their family members. Um, it doesn't get them out. It doesn't, you know, you need lawyers to get out. You need to have a habeas. You need to have a ruling in your favor. But it certainly does give people the sense that they're being listened to. Yeah, that is that is the real frustrating thing I've noticed for a lot of people in that situation is the less they're listened to, the more almost hysterical they get in, you know, in voicing the truth, which makes them sound like they're crazy. You know, because they're not being heard. And so they get even more emotional about it. It just starts going off the rails. Go, oh, that person's nuts. But it's because they're just so damn frustrated. Or you had a situation like Geronimo Pratt, what, 27 years, most of it in solitary? And uh, well, the FBI said, yeah, we framed him. <laughs> Wrote him a check for $16 million or whatever it was. And the money doesn't make up for it. Oh, hell no. Um, no, people are very damaged when they come out. And um, even people who have managed to separate themselves from the prison environment uh, intellectually or psychologically, they're still so damaged when they get out. So that's uh, Stephen Avery. I'm sure you're familiar with that whole story. When he got out, of, when he got out of prison, he went and put himself in like an igloo that was the same size as his cell. Back with Aaron Moriarty. What have you got coming up? On uh, even though this show is somewhat dated, uh, for those people who are listening now, uh, when you get back into production, do you have some hot cases coming up? Well, we're in production. It's okay. not like we've stopped. Like, and I'm still doing pieces for a show called CBS Sunday Morning. Um, and not tomorrow, but the following Sunday, I'll have a piece on whether that remote learning, that distance learning, actually worked or not. And I think most people who are involved in it would give it a C or a D at, at most. Uh, it didn't work very well. It was something that wasn't planned well and wasn't executed well. Uh, so I'm still in production, and I'm doing a number of uh, and actually, the possible wrongful convictions. Jane Dorrance's case in California. Um, and then a Ken Middleton case in Missouri. So I'm looking at other. Oh, and the Long Island serial killer. Yeah, then you got the rabbi, too, that I know uh, 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 Douglas Shearer has been probably nagging you about. Oh, yes. And, and that's interesting that he's been on that case forever, right? Yeah, forever. And someone who actually did the crime admitted to it. <laughs> And if somebody proclaims their innocence, nobody actually believes them anymore. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, the presumption of innocence seems to not be... Seems so, to have disappeared. Um, well, and I, I blame reporters for that, because I think reporters are too willing to take the word of a prosecutor. You know, I've asked every prosecutor that I've had on this show, have you been pressured to prosecute someone that you believed was innocent? And they all said yes. By whom? Who, pros who, who pressures them? Their bosses? Their superiors. They're, they're by their superiors. So let's, let's say you're assistant DA or you work in the DA's office, and even though you believe the person is innocent, they go, no, come on, you can win this case. You can win it. You know, it's not about the justice, it's about the winning. 
But I'm noticing a larger number of prosecutors who are setting up review panels. And I think that's a really good sign, even if they don't take all the cases they probably should. That is recognizing that mistakes in their office may have been made. And that is a good sign, and that's a good movement. I kind of disagree with you. I think people do believe when someone says they're innocent. I see it online all the time. I see that when I do a story and I put on a compelling story and show why someone may be innocent, people care and get involved. Mm -hmm. And one of the best examples is Ryan Ferguson. I started on that case in 2005, and it was a young man convicted of killing a local sports editor. Um, there was no physical evidence at all to tie him or one of his friends. And 10 years later, he walked out, and I believe in large part because there was a real outcry on Facebook. A lawyer, actually, he got a great new defense attorney who saw the story. And so I do think people, when they hear someone say and that there's compelling evidence that they're innocent, I think people do believe it. Well, I wish they believed it more. I'm, I'm working on one right now that was brought to me is going to be a future book that uh, Frank Gerardo and I are doing. You have a situation where these uh, mobsters, Russian mobsters, one of their family members is going to go to prison. And, and they're told, uh, if you can get us some convictions on some cases, we'll credit them towards your, your relative so they don't have to go to jail. And they figure out, wow, if we could solve a murder, <laughs> we could get him out. And so they allegedly set up a murder frame this semi-retarded uh, individual for it. And sure enough, their, uh, their family member gets, uh, gets to go free, and this kid's still in prison after 18 years. Is that a California case? Yeah. And that's uh, going to be a forthcoming book that uh, Frank and I are doing. And what's the evidence against him? What did he get convicted on? How, how were they able to frame it? Uh, they set it up pretty good. I mean, they they added, uh, they arranged the whole thing from the get-go, who the victim would be, uh, you know, what they could convince this kid to say, what they could convince him to do. And probably kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, they... they got and, rid of somebody that there was a nuisance and... And uh, got their relative out, you know. It's the thing, that's the same thing with the, what we call confidential informants. You know, uh, what's the difference between a confidential informant and a, and a paid witness? <laughs> you know... In some cases, there's none at all. Yeah. Some some are actually paid. Yeah. In Missouri, that is not unusual. There are cases where they're actually paid. Isn't that illegal? In some instances, it is not. It's been allowed. And what's interesting to me is, I as soon as I hear that a case is relying on a confidential informant or a paid informant, then I think... There's something seriously wrong with a case like that. When you need to rely on that, there's a problem. And uh, I got to tell you, maybe I told you this once before, but in Linwood, Washington, which is a little town up in Washington, the public defender is only there if you're going to plead guilty. <laughs> I know that's... That's astounding. Do uh, you have to pay for a lawyer? Yeah, if, if you just go with a public defender, guilty. you're screwed. And I asked them, oh. I, I pointed out, I said, what the hell? I said... What is your rationale for this? Is it because people have enough respect for the law that they plead guilty? 
what if, that's incredibly sad. What if they're not? Yeah, that was what I brought up. See, the, the public defender is only uh, obligated to be there a certain number of hours, like from 8 in the morning until, say, 2 in the afternoon or something. So they have the people who are pleading guilty first, and then the people who are going to plead not guilty are there with no defense. That you are guilty, but you're hiding behind the lawyer. But my advice after seeing so many of these cases is nobody should talk to the cops, ever. ever. Innocent, guilty, ever. That's why I yell at the TV when Law & Order is on. I yell, stop talking! Get an attorney! Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, yeah, well, he, he wouldn't get an attorney unless he was guilty. I've heard that before. Well, that's what they thought about, remember, the John Bonet Ramsey case. Mm-hmm. That was people thought that they hid behind their expensive lawyers, but in fact, they were using common sense. Yeah, that's... Uh, well, we've, we've heard a lot of weird theories on that case. I don't think we're ever going to know. Yeah, we had Stephen Singular on. He had a whole a whole other take on that case that was fascinating. Mm. But no. then, his, you know, her brother or not. Or, or the, I don't think it was her brother. No. I do think that the case will be resolved at some point. There is DNA, and it doesn't match the brother, and it doesn't match either the parents. I think there will be. Well, they also said, well, the parents didn't cry enough on television. They didn't, I know. They didn't think they looked emotional enough. But the police lied from the very beginning and lied about the fact that they said there were no there was snow that surrounded the house so no footprints and that wasn't true um and in that house i mean i could never be able to explain the ransom notes but i think there's a lot of evidence to indicate that it was an outsider may have been someone who knew the family well but it was an outsider when you approach these things how many how many of these wrongful conviction stories or cases have you worked on or tried to get something done with? I would say uh, close to 10 um, and in about six of these cases, they're out. Like we worked on the West Memphis Three. They're mm-hmm. all out, but they took a Alfred place. And so that wasn't an exoneration as much, but everyone knows if you know what the Alfred plea is where you basically say, I'm innocent, but I'm worried that you're going to try me again and I might be found guilty. Mm-hmm. So I'll just plead guilty, um, which is just ridiculous legal fiction. So those are three guys, Ryan Ferguson, Marty Tankless, um, Crosley Green, whose case has been overturned, even though he is sitting in prison. Uh, Kevin Cooper's case I've worked on. Um, uh, Damien uh, Thibodeau in New Orleans. So there have been a number of these cases. It just astonishes me. I mean, some of them are high profile, most of them, of course, we'd never hear about. Well, of course not, because, I uh, think, you know, there's and how many... If you don't have someone who cares about you, that's, that, those are the cases that haunt me. The cases I'm not going to hear about because there aren't family members who care about them. Yeah, that's tragic. There was one that... Uh, the mother, I worked with the mother on this one, she was really trying to get her son out, who was, she believed, wrongly convicted of murder, and everything was kind of in his favor, except his lawyer had used a particular legal technique where another person he identified as his accomplice, and it was a legal maneuver, 
not necessarily based on fact, but just on how the law happened to be written. Well, because he named someone as an accomplice to go back down and say he never did it is very difficult. Yeah. So you got to have a good attorney. And sometimes you don't. And it's... And if an attorney misses a deadline, that can keep you from getting a, a, a habeas down the road. If you miss a state deadline and the state then appeals it when you try to get into federal court, you might not get into federal court. So much rests on the shoulders of good lawyers. And, you know, you're only entitled to an attorney for the initial appeals, not down the road. So if you don't have an innocence project or, like in Crosley Green's case, the reason why he has a really great law firm is the first time we did an hour on um, Crosley Green's case, the American Bar Association, someone from there, saw it, and they asked a law firm to take his case. So he's had a law firm since then that has done it pro bono, but he would not be, he would not be where he is if that law firm had not taken his case. It's so scary. <laughs> it really is Again, scary. Again, a reason to do the story. That's why you do it. You know, we had uh, Willis Wilson on years ago, and he'd been on Oprah. <laughs> he had gone to take a girl out for lunch, and uh, after the lunch, he goes home, and then the next thing he knows, he's being arrested for kidnapping and assaulting and threatening the life of this wo another woman and making a performance of sex acts with a, a knife to her throat, and he's picked out of the lineup by the victim. So that's him right there. Of course, he was the only one in the lineup who fit the description. You know, he has a beard, only guy in the lineup with a beard. Uh, and he refused to take a plea deal. And they were trying to pin seven murders on him. Oh, my God. And he was totally innocent. And they kept saying, well, if you'll take this deal, you'll get 35 years instead of life or whatever. And he refused. He kept saying, no, I didn't do it. And the case finally goes to trial. And the jury comes back after about 45 minutes and says, innocent. And the judge says, son, you've been through hell. Let me take you across the street and buy ice cream. <laughs> That'll make up for it. But he spent, I mean, he spent like a year or so, you know, waiting trial and being browbeaten, trying you know, to get him to confess, you know, take a deal. Well, I prefer hearing those stories than the person who spends 16, 21, 30 years in prison, so... I'll take that any day. Yeah, but then you get out, the culture shock must be, what's a laptop? <laughs> what's a phone? What's a phone? What's a smartphone? Yeah, even a moderately intelligent phone. <laughs> <laughs> How do you explain where you've been for the last 20 years when you try to get a job? Joe, that's like being in the witness protection program. <laughs> you well, have, you, know, exactly. you, can, you know, you can be Rockford and live in a trailer, uh, <laughs> you know, a motor home on the beach. Yeah, in Malibu. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's easily affordable for anybody, <laughs> even a private eye. Sign me up. But uh, that that really is uh, problematic if you're in the witness protection program because you have no backstory. You have no previous employment. You just have a new name. And that's why a lot of guys don't stay in there very long. Mm. They go, this sucks. <laughs> or... Who was the hitman who was in it, the Arizona hit, the hitman? Who used to work for John Gotti? Yeah. He got out of it. He was tired of being hidden away. 
Well, you know the uh, the U.S. Marshals and the uh, and the FBI didn't compare notes on where they were sending people, and they were all sending them to the same place, <laughs> Walla Walla, Washington. So you had, if it was the last place on earth anyone's going to look for, some you know Chicago mobsters, Walla Walla, Washington, and so they send them all there, and so they all went into business. <laughs> It's kind of like that movie My Blue Heaven was based on that, you know. They, they show up in this little town, and there's all their old crime mates. <laughs> it's a strange business. Very this strange is, this business. is This is probably why our friend Punch and those that participate in the activities he describes uh, succeeded. Because, they know, it, you know, one, two scores, and that's the end of it. Well, yeah, that's and because they walk it, was, away. it was not like being in the mob where you can't get out. You could do one heist... Or two heists and retire and give it up. Yeah. And most of that money went into uh, New York real estate. As our friend Punch says, I could look out at the Manhattan skyline and know what heist helped finance the real estate company to put up that building. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah that, that book's coming out this year, too. <laughs> ah, stealing Manhattan. Stealing Manhattan. I only took the whole m- most of the show to get uh, to get a plug in. Yeah, I always I always got like to get a plug in for my latest projects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's uh, got to be something. Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny you, when you, as I'm sure you know, when you do research on this stuff, you wind up quite often knowing more than law enforcement. And in this particular case, it's the Pink Panthers. You had Interpol saying there's 600 Pink Panthers. No, there were six. Uh, most of them are no longer living. There's about two or three left. And most of the people doing the heist are just are hired hands. This is the role you play. They don't even necessarily know who hired them. So they're so, so most of them are gone? Most of them are dead? Yeah, there's a, a couple left uh, that I know. Well, well, you know, Punch's father probably. Yeah, Punch's dad. He's cooperated fully. Just get this, Aaron. He operated doing the multi-million dollar Actually, up to $1 billion in diamond heists, precious gems. He had five offices in the diamond district. <laughs> he never got arrested, never got prosecuted, got away with everything. Aaron, thanks yeah. for joining us again. It's always a fun to have you come by. It's always great to be with you all. Yeah, don't wait for that toaster, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. I'm not going to hold my breath. No, don't hold your breath. <laughs> well, someday you're going to open up a package and it'll be a toaster from us. Thanks again, Aaron. Love you. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Man Allen and the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lighting Up Lounge. <laughs> 